0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 41 of the Strength and Success Podcast, brought to you by Culture Nature at culturenature.com, and by the Train Eroic platform program we have, which is Cultivating Strength Team Training. So if you need programming, that's four days a week. That's on there. And there's also a peaking program if you need that, too. But episode 41 is Take Care of Your Team. That's what we're titling this one. This is Riley Presno. Hello. I am Trevor Jaffe. Of course, if you're listening to this, I have to do that anyways, even though it always looks weird on camera. But... We go live every Thursday around 1.30 for the recording of the Strength and Success podcast. And then we download it and it's uploaded to listen to every Monday on every podcast platform. I think I have got everything out of the way.
1: I think you nailed all of it.
0: All of it. Nailed it. All right. Awesome. Uh, I promise you I'm not caffeinated that much, but you know, I'm going to talk fast anyways. So take care of your team. Uh, we once, once mentioned on the podcast picking your five, you know, the five people who are going to help support you and elevate you. Uh, we neglected to mention that you need to take care of your team. We were listening to a video because I always put on like educational video like first thing in the morning and, and before bed at night, you know, when we're getting ready and winding down and uh, I heard this phrase that talk about taking care of your team. I'm like, wow, that's, that's really exceptional because that's true and it made me think, introspectively, I have the same five people around me for the last five years and I look online all the time and I see people changing clicks, changing whatever, changing this, changing that, changing the code, changing everything. And it's, it's really the same circle of five people that are in my life for the last five years, and granted they've been the most successful of my life those last five years, it keeps growing, and I'm always there for them in the way that they're always there for me. Even if I don't even coach them anymore, like, like we still have a friendship, but I don't coach them and they need help, I'm there to help them, I take care of my team because they're the people who are responsible for elevating and building me up and my accountability system and reliability system I need to be that same thing for them. So we always talk a lot about how to need to take care of yourself, but I wanted to make sure that we don't neglect talking about taking care of your team.
1: Yeah. I think that uh, this is a very underrated thing. Um, and I am incredibly supportive and loyal to a fault. Um, so it's very, it's something that I find to be very important. Like, uh, Trevor has mentioned before, like if I know someone who had like makes a shirt or, uh, a sticker. It, does, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, if I see someone that I converse with or I talk to um, relatively regularly, even if they are not necessarily like my immediate five circle, I generally will always support them. Um, and it doesn't have to be monetarily either. Like I will try to share people's posts when they put stuff up, if I see it or share someone's business or whatever it is, because like those things, those things matter within social media. Like we have a very small... Uh, We have a small startup supplement company with Culture Nutra, you know, and like anytime someone shares it, I'm like, wow, that's so cool because I'm not asking anyone to share it. But it is nice to see someone like share the post because they liked it or they comment on it or whatever. And those are things that I pay attention to. Like I notice who follows culture. I notice who doesn't support. I notice who does support. And those things are very important to me because I feel like I give that same amount back. And it's not that I expect people to be as equally as supportive as I am or whatever, but it is nice to know that like your support is reciprocated. So if you have, you know, a group of three or five people that are always really supportive of you and they're always bringing you up and they're always, uh, you know, like gassing you up or whatever, like sharing your business or whatever it is. Sorry make about sure, the gas. <laughs> make sure that you're, make sure that you're doing that for them as well. And it's, very simple like i said it doesn't have to be monetary like it can literally just be like hey this is my friend's business please go support and follow and like their posts because in the age of social media liking being seen sharing content all that kind of stuff is incredibly important that's how we that's how the business grows like that's for most people, that's the sole uh, basis for their career. Like it yeah,
0: feeds the know. almighty algorithm to have yeah. shares, likes, and reposts and comments and it all It costs you
1: literally nothing to share your friend's business or no. to follow no. them or to comment on them. So if you think that you're supportive but you don't follow your friend's stuff, then you're probably not as supportive as you think you are. And even if it's not something that you agree with, like I know, like, I have friends who have very different, vastly different interests than I do. Like my friend Hannah is. My weirdest friend and I love her dearly but she's into some things that I'm just very not into um but I will support her and I will listen she she went on this like 20 minute rant once about um crystals I don't know anything about crystals but she's really into them but I listen to it <laughs> you know like I listen to it because it matters to her so it matters to me um these are just very small things that you can do but we have to learn to be a little bit less selfish and a little bit more selfless um and I don't think that that can be stated more. Like, I think that more people need to be a little bit less selfish.
0: Sure, I'm a big believer in reciprocity, which is basically giving to get. It's giving with not the expectation to get back, but you're going to get back anyways because people will reciprocate, and that's what reciprocity means is to reciprocate. So the more you are protecting your team and taking care of your team and supporting them, the more likely they are to support you back. And like Riley said, in this world of social media where basically that's, that's your systems of marketing and generating things and a crowd or audience are listening, it doesn't take any effort to share something that you find valuable for other people or help for other people. Even if you don't necessarily buy the shirt, buy the product or support the meat or the brand or the federation, whatever it is, just simply hitting that arrow button, putting it in your story allows more people to see it And by bringing your team up and taking care of your team, you're going to go with them. You know, I've talked about this a bunch of times, but everyone tends to elevate together. And it really takes very little effort to be supportive of your friends network and your team and do things. Um, You know, people have have asked about that, like where we're going to be and when. It's like, I'm going to be wherever my friends are. I'm going to be wherever my team is because I want to be there for them. So if you see my friends going somewhere, there's a good chance I'm going to be there too. And
1: even like something small like hey, good work, proud of you for doing this, is also support. You know, like sometimes people just need a little bit of validation that they're doing like okay in life and you shouldn't have to ask for validation all the time from people that support you. Your friends and your family and your closest people should let you know that you're doing a good job. It's not hard to say, good job. Like that's really not hard. It's not hard to say I'm proud of you. Um, And like we both mentioned,
0: some, we... Sometimes when you're watching your athletes' videos, it's really hard to say good job. <laughs> Sorry to some of you, but I'm like, man, what are you thinking?
1: Um, but there's, you like we both mentioned, you should not give with the expectation that you're going to yeah. get, though. Like, you should definitely be 100% pure with your intention of, like, I want to do this because I want to, not I'm going to do this because I expect something in return. That's when... That's when things start to get a little bit muddy and then you lose the intention of it. And like I said, it's not as pure anymore. So then it feels a little bit, um, forced. So it really, it doesn't take a lot to show support for the people that matter to you. Um, a lot of the times it's just words, Hey, good job. Proud of you. Um, you're killing it. Follow my friend's page, whatever it is. It's very small. You don't have to spend money.
0: You know, it's it's funny because people always think that the the ultra mega wealthy or the super corporations are the greediest, and it's funny is they're the ones who actually give the most for charitable organizations and causes. I don't know if people are familiar with things like the wealth pledge. Um, the wealth pledge is when people who are like very very wealthy pass on they they pledge to give like fifty percent of their their as, asset value and uh, total value to charity and charitable organizations. And this, there's like 117 people on this wealth pledge. And it's, it's totaled something like like 300 or $400 billion at this point. And these are the people that people are like, oh, they're super greedy. and they, they, you know, They're going to be giving it all back. But that's a level of reciprocity. They're just not doing it while they're alive. And that's how they want to be remembered in their death is somebody who gave back. Uh, you can do that while you're alive. You know? <laughs> hey, great. If you, if you get wealthy enough to be in the wealth pledge, that's awesome. But you can give back while you're still alive and you'll get back while you're still alive too. So you can enjoy that. So make sure you're giving to people, not just expecting from people to get from people. Take care of your team. All right, unique aspect, we always are allowed live questions that we'll answer here, and people who have sent us questions in our stories that we will answer, so if you send us questions on here, we'll likely answer them, or if we are already received questions, she puts hers usually in, on Tuesdays, I put mine on Wednesdays for Ask Me Anything kind of thing. Um, I don't get the weird personal questions Riley gets, maybe because I'm a guy, I don't know. <laughs> no one wants to know my favorite socks. <laughs> it was Vans
1: this week, my favorite Vans. Okay, um, first question, what's a deload?
0: Ah, okay, so without getting too technical and too scientific, we tend to dumb things down in the powerlifting world from the actual aspect of strength programming periodization. And in training, it's known as overreaching phases, where you will do more work than your body is accustomed or can handle. And then you take a down step back or a taper, which allows your body to then come back and recover so you can do it again. So basically you're going through the shock and awe stage with your body, doing too much that your body is getting resistant to, and then you take a step back so it can kind of recover and rebuild and do something. It's kind of like the same way you build a callus in your hands. The more you grab a barbell, the thicker and dense that callus will be over time until it gets too dry or too much work, and if you don't give it enough rest and recovery, it's going to tear. So training and recovery is the same kind of way. The way we recover is by doing a little bit less. A deload is that overreaching phase taper and there are short periods of time, some people might take a couple days deload, I usually prefer like a week deload, and what they are is lower loads and lower overall volume to cause less central nervous system fatigue, less peripheral fatigue, and less muscle damage. The one that takes longest to recover from is the muscle damage, and that's the high threshold loads that we use, or the total amount of volume and time under tension. Uh, Central and peripheral nervous fatigue tends to dissipate within a couple hours, but muscle damage can take a lot longer, and if you are severely overtrained, which is very rare, but it it can happen, especially in certain areas like CrossFit or high volume or certain bodybuildings where they have a lot of eccentric load and negatives that causes significant muscle damage. It can take a little bit longer, which is why I usually like that one week period. The other benefit of a deload is avoiding mental burnout of having to push your hardest week in and week out. Taking that step back allows you to take one to two steps more forward. So a deload is just a transitional week or a couple days for your body to recover from all the work you've done to go further and beyond. Because if you don't take that deload, your immune system gets compromised, your mood gets compromised, your hormones get compromised because you're doing too much for too long and you're redlining and you can only do what you can recover from, not how much you can condition yourself to. Like you can condition yourself to put your hand on a hot stove, but it ain't gonna be good for you. Because your hand's gonna get calloused and burned and then desensitized. Uh, that's how you hook grip, by the way. You desensitize, <laughs> you condition to it. So in one aspect it's good and in another aspect it's not so good. But it's one of those things where People don't understand deloads, they hate them or they dread them, but everybody needs them whether they think they do or they don't, they'll benefit from them in the long term. Uh, think about it this way. If you went to the gym and hit your absolute max squat, you'll probably hit it on a Monday. Maybe you'll come within 5 to 10 pounds of it on Tuesday, maybe 10 to 15 pounds of it on Wednesday. By Thursday, you start seeing a rapid decline because you haven't allowed for that recovery. Training is kind of the same way. Now imagine that aspect from a week in, week out, week in, week out, all the time, 52 weeks a year, you're going to burn out. Yeah,
1: and there's no set like formula for like when to deload because every athlete is going to be a little bit different and also That may fluctuate with the athlete also um, You know, like if you're an athlete who I notice you deload every fifth week But you start, you know, you change your job or you moved or like there was a massive life stressor I may deload you early because you had more stress in your life and stress accumulates in the body the same way because the body doesn't know the difference between training stress or life stress. So there is no set formula for that and that's why we always talk about how communication is really, really important with the athlete. Um, It kind of drives me nuts when an athlete just sends me their videos and they don't list anything. Like it'll just be two or three videos, not even labeled with um, what the movement was or anything and they give me nothing because that doesn't let me know how you're feeling. So if I don't get that information from a lifter, I will usually respond first before I even give any feedback is, how did this feel? How are you feeling? How are things going? Right. Whatever it is. Use your so
0: words. <laughs> it's, it's really not hard.
1: Um, but those kind of things are important because if I notice a lifter start, if they're usually deloading every fifth week, but on their third week they're like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty burnt out. I've had a lot of stress. I have exams. i have uh, moving, whatever. If I notice that, I may deload them that week early, but I don't know that unless the lifter has communicated to me that they have that extra life stress. So if I don't know that and you're just pretending like things are okay and that there's nothing going on, you're probably going to deload too I don't want to say too late because it's not too late, you're just gonna feel like shit. Yeah. You know, like you're not gonna get the adequate amount of time and you may actually end up feeling worse during that extra week because you didn't get a chance to deload when you really, really needed it. Um, so, there is no set formula, and it's going to fluctuate per person based off of their stress levels. It's going to fluctuate from athlete to athlete. There are some athletes who deload every seventh week, and that's totally fine. There are some athletes that have to deload every third week because that's all they can handle. So, it really is different and individual to everyone. But as a coach, you have to pay attention to the verbiage that your athlete uses and also notice trends in, like, okay, well, they generally start to fatigue by the end of week four at this point, so maybe this is time. Like, you have to pay attention to these things. There is, uh, there is a method to it, it's just not an exact
0: science. Right, it's never gonna be an exact science. There's no right way, wrong way, or my way, it's just the way, and you, you come through that over time of, like Riley said, when someone's communicating to you how they're feeling or how things are moving, you can start to measure and manage that fatigue more accurately. Yeah.
1: Okay, how to replicate the feel of calibrated plates when Jim only has pound plates?
0: Uh, This really does not matter at all with squats and bench press. So if you're one of those tool bags who has to squat and has to bench (laughs) press with calibrated plates, know you're a fucking moron and the entire rest of the gym hates you. Sorry, respectfully. respectfully, that's disrespectful. I'm going to be honest. That's just straight disrespectfully. That is so dumb. And gym owners and gym members hate you that you have to squat and you have to bench with your calibrated kilo plates. There and then there's place. somebody else at the gym who needs a deadlift. And there's not enough plates for you or that person of deadlift because you have to bench with them because you can beat in the USAPL. Yeah. Um, God I help you so much for being that dumb. But realistically, metric plates are smaller and thinner and tighter and flat. So, where it really matters is when you deadlift and how the bar breaks the floor. Anyone who can pull 500 pounds with imperial plates and 500 pounds with metric plates will tell you it feels very different breaking the floor because of how tightly packed they are and then they're they're locked in with that competition collar. It's a very stiff floor break. That's really the only place that absolutely actually matters. And if you are not privy enough to have metric plates, you know, competition kilo plates within your gym. You can just use a stiff bar and really pack them in tight and double collar them down to the lock because that will give you that same stiffness feeling, get used to that tougher break and that's, that's the only way you can really replicate that. The complete opposite of that is cheating is using bumper plates because they're wider and thicker and the bar is going to have more flex and it makes it look really, really impressive on your video. But there's a lot of people who can tell you they can deadlift 500 pounds with bumper plates and then they can't deadlift 500 pounds in a competition because it was easier. The whole idea of training is it should be harder than the competition. The, car, the competition should be the easiest day of the year for you because you've done all the work and every weight is lifted for you. You don't have to load your own weights, the spotters and loaders do everything for you. You just stand up, sit down, lay down, press, and pick up. That's it. You have a very simple task on competition day. So if, if you're focused on preparing for the competition and you know you're going to have metric plates in competition and you don't have them in the gym, every so often pull with a stiff bar. Or maybe your last deloads or light less, uh, deloads or lighter days or tapering into the meat, use the stiff bar to get used to that stiffer feeling.
1: You could you could use bands off the ground, like you could use bands against the bar if you wanted to, but that is going to force your pattern, like I, I tend to see that sumo lifters are generally a little bit better against bands because it forces them into like a locked, uh, stable pattern, the bar doesn't generally drift away from them, so like you could use bands to make it harder at the bottom with the stiff bar, but you also don't want those bands in for peak, so stiff bar is probably your best friend.
0: Yeah, we have a question from Big Wit, um, who keeps asking to join the podcast, that, that's not going to happen. Just letting you know. I don't know if you're hitting that button accidentally, but every week you do it. Sometimes it's not going to happen. But having pain in front of shoulder, bottom of bench press. Been told to start with the big three on shoulder health and mobility and tips. The big three is squat bench and deadlift. I think you mean the... No, the, no, the lock three. Oh, the lock three. The lock three. Andrew Locke is an Australian physiotherapist. And really, he just put his own name in front of something that's been around for 30 years. The NASM was teaching this as, as uh, uh, prone floor extensions, YTAs. Back in 1992, so it's nothing new. Uh, that's how old I am. <laughs> Sorry, by accident he says, eh, "That's cool. I'm just razzing you." But yeah, the, the lock three is just basically a prone Y, a prone T, and a prone A with palms up and palms down. Uh, there, your shoulder moves in seven different directions, and basically you're doing all seven of them at some point in that aspect. And it is to work on the small intrinsic rotator cuff muscles and to help you with scapular depression, you know, scapular retraction, and all that, so you can get that proper rotation and congruency of your scapula to move. Now. You can start with something like that. There's no guarantee it's going to help your shoulder pain because you don't know what's causing your shoulder pain. So that's why we never make a blanket recommendation say, do this. It's one of those things where you test and apply. You, you do something like the lock 3 or YTH from the prone floor position uh, every day, like twice a day for a week. And if you notice the symptoms are improving, it's probably something that's going to help you. If you notice the symptoms are still there, it's not improving. It's not identifying the reason why you're feeling pain. And that's when you'd want to reach out to a clinician to find out what is causing it. Could be a bicep issue, could be a lat issue, could be a, a postural issue. Uh, you could have actual structural damage that you don't know, like a frayed rotator cuff or a labrum tear, a slap tear. These are things why you don't necessarily guess. You can take a week or two to try some so called correctives or prehab movements and see how they feel. And if it diminishes, good, it's helping. If it's not diminishing, there's more to the puzzle that you need to figure out. And that's when you want to seek professional help for it.
1: I think what you said is really important about um, trying it for like a week or so because. Mm-hmm you know, with, with pain or with things that are, uh, inhibited, you know, a, a lifter will, will generally, um, recommend daily homework, right? Or like prehab or whatever kind of things. And a lifter will do it for one day and expect it to get better. And then it doesn't. Um, if you've been accumulating, (laughs) if if you've been accumulating an injury or, or an inhibition for a long period of time, doing, Prehab, rehab, mobility movements, one or two days isn't going to get rid of that restriction or inhibition. So if you are getting daily homework, it's because you need to do it daily. Daily. And if it isn't working after a week or two, then it probably needs to switch up the movements. Like, you know, like you have to, it's trial and error. Like, we never know what's going to work. But if after a week or two, it's not improving, then you can switch the movements up, but you have to consistently do something for a week or two before you can decide if it is or isn't working. Like we only train four or five days a week, so that's only four or five days a week that we are actively working on these things. So if you're only doing it once and you're like, well, this thing that's been bothering you for six months isn't any better, well, it's been bothering you for six, six months. months. So one day isn't going to reverse all of that. So it is trial and error, but you do have to be diligent and intentional with these things that you're doing in order to see improvement.
0: There's a lot of things like that that are are daily that people don't realize like you have to do this every day. It's like you can't just say I ate on Tuesday so I don't need to eat the rest of this week (laughs) or you know I showered on Monday so I don't need to shower the rest of this week. Well if you live and work from home go for it but if you have to actually go (laughs) off the rest of the people who have to smell you please shower every day. But it's like that perspective that people have with training like oh I did this one time I should be better now like no you know. Someone says, how do I lose 20 pounds in, in six days? You started 20 weeks ago. That's how you lose 20 pounds. know, It's a process that you go through slow and deliberate and over time and you learn and you, you build consistency and you build good habits. We talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. If you have something that's been bothering you for six months, it's not going to go away in six seconds just because you did one lift. Yep. There's no magic pill. There's no silver bullet. Effort, and work, and consistency. Absolutely. What is the best alternative exercise for leg extensions? Home gym equals no machine. Uh, that would be a standing sissy squat. Old school bodybuilding style, up on the toes, use a rack if you want for support or like a TRX or like a band and do standing sissy squats because you're going to get the same terminal knee extension from those and that stretch position. They're brutally hard, especially if you slow the eccentric down. I think Brooks on like my, my train along thing. So yeah. So if you don't have a leg extension at home, standing sissy squats and I apologize now, you're going to love hate them. Yeah, they kind of suck they're Spain,
1: brutal. Uh, Spanish goblet squats are fun Spanish
0: yeah. goblet squats are another way to do yeah. that if you have bands that you can tie around the knees and do like goblet squats because you're going to get that same the extension that you would for an extension they're fantastic yes
1: okay how did you and Trevor start wrecking meats?
0: I was attacked at gunpoint told I had to <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um so you know, you're in the sport long enough, you want to give back to it. Uh, I'm gonna go off on a small tangent here as far as the ref is concerned. I actually have a video, a caption that I mean to post, I just haven't yet because I've been busy. Not everybody belongs in that chair. Everybody complains about judging, but not everybody belongs in that chair. If you can't be unbiased and decisive, you don't belong in that chair. I've been to many meets where they don't have the adequate light system where the lights will not turn on until all three judges give their decision. And I've been to meet and the highest level national judges who just don't give you an absolute answer. Um, Like I asked a national judge once at nationals was a national judge was sitting across from an international judge. Why they threw a red because we're allowed to ask them. We want to know what they didn't like. And her response was, well, he threw one to the senior judge. She waited to see what the senior judge was going to choose before she did hers. That was five years ago. They had the light systems changed now at nationals. But that was five years ago. She didn't blog in that chair because she had no conviction. So if you're going to ref, make sure that you can be unbiased and you belong in a chair. And we've seen it out other meets where someone will look up and wait to a senior official to see what they choose to, to do what they do. You don't belong in that chair because you're taking away or giving someone a lift they don't deserve. Or you're taking away a lift that they do deserve but you didn't like it for whatever reason because the other guy didn't like it or the other girl didn't like it. But how you start refing is you simply just reach out to that organization and ask them if you can. Um, some are more strict than others. The meet director will usually choose who their refs are. If they belong to a major federation like WRPF or USBA, uh, they have testing, uh, USAPL, they have testing, so you have to register as a referee, pass the test, and usually sit through a a practical exam stuff like that to demonstrate you're able to recognize what is a good or a bad lift and so forth, because they don't want to just put anybody in a chair. There are some meets that just put anybody in a chair, it doesn't mean they know it. And the problem with that is people tend to be very, very biased. That's their training partner or their friend or the person who owns their gym or their coach and so forth. Uh, an example of this and why I rant on this. When we were at the meet a couple weeks ago, one of my lifters who's competing, and it's a money meet, hit a 30-pound platform PR in his squat, and took a step before the rat command. I was a side judge. I threw a red. He thanked me for it because he knew he screwed up. But that was a money meet that was he was on the line for, and he's one of the better lifters there. It could have cost him a significant amount of money in that meet, but I still threw the red because it didn't matter that I'm his coach or his friend. It mattered that I'm sitting in the chair. And so you have to have that ability to say, hey, that's a violation of the rules. That lift doesn't count, or you do not belong in the chair. Absolutely.
1: And it doesn't – okay, you definitely have to have conviction. I think that's really important because um, literally every meet that I've judged at, barring like one – I have had some lifter, whether the lifter or the coach or the friend, come up to me afterwards and say, very condescendingly, um, "What was the standard you were looking for there?" The rule res- book. <laughs> and my response is, "Well, it's always, because it's always squat. Because everyone's a fucking bitch when it comes to squat depth." And it, he comes up and says, "What were you looking for?" And I said, "The hip crease below the top of the knee. Thank you." And that's that's what I'm looking for. And if I threw a red, it's because I didn't think that he hit the depth. He I didn't. He didn't hit depth. I don't, I don't care that it's someone that I know. I don't care that it is my client. I don't care that it's my friend. If you mess up a lift, you're getting a red. Right. That's, you know what? Uh, um, same thing at Jordan's meet. I had a client who um, I was her head judge for bench, and she had the exact same standard for a pause command as everyone else did. She had to pause it just like everyone else did, and she did it because that's what I hold my lifters to the standard. Um, it also doesn't matter if you think that the lift is pretty or not. If it's the standard, you have to give them whites, you know, like... I've had people send me a uh, list for like, this is really ugly, but it was the standard. So the depth <laughs> <ends>
0: back <laughs> up and the bar didn't travel back down or it was paused or, you know, it doesn't have to be ugly. I mean, it doesn't have to be pretty, the but only, you know. You don't get whites
1: for pretty. If basically.
0: it meets the standard, it meets the standard. And that's what you're looking at as a judge. You're not looking at how efficient their technique is or um, effective it is. You're, you're looking at, did it meet the standard? Which means for a squat, you know, it was to the commands. It was below depth. The bar didn't travel back up and down. You know, it came back up. They waited for the rack command and so forth. Same with bench. The bar, with, the bar was paused, motionless on the chest. They pressed in the press command. It racked, uh, They waited for the rack command, all these things. You know, there's small stuff like that. Deadlift, it wasn't ramped. It wasn't hitched. They didn't have soft knees. You know, you're looking for things that are a violation of the rules that would take away a lift, not because you don't like them or you do like them. You know, you have to go by the standard of the rule book. Yeah. Not the standard of what you like to see. And that is an issue as well. There are certain judges who like to see a certain squat depth. It's like, that's not the standard. No. If the standard is below parallel, did they break parallel? Yes. Then it's a white light. It's not a red light just because you like to see ass-to-grass squats. That's, yeah. You don't belong in a chair if that's your case. No,
1: yeah, that's a, that's a pet peeve of mine too, holding people to like unrealistic standards. Like The standards aren't a surprise. You can look at any rule mm-hmm. book and it literally tells you, if you're going to compete, you need to look at your rule book and see what it says. It'll give it literally lists the commands. It lists what they're looking for, and then we also go over it again in the rules meeting before the before the lit, or before the meet starts. So if you are surprised by the standard, that's because you didn't train to the standard.
0: Right, and that you have to you have bad. to be willing if you want a ref to also know the rule book. Uh, it's more than just the, the lifts, you know. Are, are they wearing apparel they're not supposed to wear? What I mean, but that is, you know, do they have compression elbow sleeves on when they bench press? They're not allowed to do that. You know, do they have three meter wraps on when they're supposed to be in a two point five meter wrap meet? They're not allowed to do that. You have to be able to recognize and know those things and say, hey, that's against the rules. This lift is no good because of that, and then tell them that. It's not just depth. It's not just a pause. and It's not just not hitching. There are certain things. Like um, there was a lifter who was. Uh, it's up to the meet director and the state chair. If you're just a referee, because you can ask them if they'll allow. But there was a lifter who had. Leg shorts on, the RPS does a lot of leg shorts, but it, it exceeded past the singlet, which is not in the rule book. They cannot be compression, they cannot exceed the singlet, and they did. And I said to that person, you cannot have these because they're compression and they exceed the singlet. And she argued with the state chair that they allowed legs, and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll allow them, because they don't seem very compressive, which is up to him, but the rule did state they couldn't be beyond the singlet, they couldn't be compressive, so I was following the rule. You have to actually know the rules. Yep. Not a surprise. <laughs> never a surprise. Never a surprise. <laughs> okay, best
1: mindset to achieve a new PR.
0: This is an interesting one because someone's looking for like an aha moment or what to do in the moment of. And I gotta be honest, this like, like the time process before, this happens weeks, months out. If you have done the work that you're supposed to do, and that includes inside and outside the gym, and you've been trending upwards, it shouldn't be a lack of confidence issue whether or not you hit the PR at that point. You're strong enough and you know you've done the work, so you have to be confident that you've done everything possible to hit that PR. So if your mindset is any less than that, that I'm strong enough to do this, There's a likelihood that you know you didn't do what you were supposed to do to earn this. So you earn your PRs. It's not a mindset trick. You can't flip a switch and become more confident and all of a sudden you're 5% stronger. Uh, I mean caffeine helps. But (laughs) ultimately, it's coming down to knowing that I did everything possible to earn this PR.
1: It's always earned, not given. That's exactly what I answered this on my story too and that's exactly what I said. I'm like sure you can be a little bit scared like you can be a little bit scared of like oh this is a this is a big PR for me like that's going to happen said it a million times if you're waiting for it to not be scary and powerlifting you're going to be waiting forever so you can be a little bit scared but if you have done all the work and you're not cutting corners and you're doing everything 24 hours a day not just two hours while you're lifting if you're doing all of that all the time you will get the PR right. so you have a little bit of self-confidence a little bit of belief
0: This is a question that's on there and to me this is, no offense Dan, this is the wrong mindset. What will be more important if you don't have time for both nutrition and macros or sleep? If you don't have the time for both, you are not prioritizing your goals. We all
1: have the same 24 hours in a day and uh, I know people that are very busy that have that own two to three businesses, have two kids, married, um, have their own training, follow macros. I know people that do this and they have no problem, they don't ever complain about
0: it either. Every Sunday my iPhone gives me a rundown of my screen time Mm -hmm. and if it goes up I get fucking pissed off. (laughs) We also. I'm like damn it because I've wasted time and that's how I look at it. Time is your most valuable asset because you cannot replenish it. It's not infinite. It's going to run out. You're going to run out of time. You have to prioritize what's important to you and I'm going to ask you silly questions like. You know, how many stupid blogs did you read that have nothing to do with your goals? How many, how many TV shows did you watch? How much time did you spend listening to something you should be doing or whatever? Uh, or just generally lazy or just scrolling through Instagram or scrolling through Facebook or whatever. How much time have you actually wasted? Count that up. Like if you spend an amount of time looking at how much time you actually wasted and see. Because you can break down that screen time breakdown. It tells you what you've done on entertainment and what you've done on work and the whole night. It'll actually tell you that. And you can see, wow, I actually do have the time. I just didn't prioritize it. So you never want to choose between sleep or nutrition. They're both necessary for your goals. What you have to choose is what's more important to you, Netflix or that PR. Yep. Netflix will still be there. The opportunity for that PR, the opportunity for that promotion, the opportunity for career growth, the opportunity for a relationship or whatever you're doing is not going to be there. You have to prioritize what means the most to you. What you actually achieve is just a demonstration of what meant the most to you. Absolutely.
1: And if if we're talking about nutrition – I know that I'm weird and I like to cook every meal fresh and that's my personal choice and I make time for it to make every meal fresh, but with meal prep, you can meal prep one time a week. So that means if you like, if you work five days a week and you're off on Sundays or Saturdays or whatever day it is, use that day to prep all of your meals for the next seven days. Yes. So that way, that's one less thing that you have to do.
0: They also have a convenience fee. Uh, I love paying convenience fee. It's just my weird thing. And I don't mean like a convenience store like 7-Eleven, but a convenience fee of single-serving bags of food. Uh, There's single serving already pre-cooked chicken. There's single serving oatmeal. There's pre-serving. And these things take 30 seconds to heat up, one minute to heat up and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. I even have a portable oven that you literally plug in that if you're driving somewhere road trips or traveling somewhere, it's a little insulated heat bag that has a hot plate at the bottom. And if you just bring the food with you, you can put it in there for 25 to 30 minutes and it'll be hot and ready to eat. All you have to do is make it ahead of time and bring it with you. And the oven goes with you anywhere. We
1: have literally done this
0: in the airport. Yeah, I've done it in the airport. It collapses down, takes up no space. It's the size of a book if it's collapsed down. It takes up very little space. It fits in my backpack and I brought it with me on planes. We brought it with you to the meat. I ate ground beef and corn and whatnot to stay on my nutrition for the for the meat for the most part. Uh, it's just a matter of prioritizing what means the most to you. Get rid of things that don't help your goal or put them on the end. And you have to, you the same way you earn a PR, you have to earn that wasted time. You have to earn that time that I've done everything I'm supposed to first. Let me do what I want to next.
1: If you are not
0: finding a solution, you're going to find an excuse. Yeah, uh, great, great, great quote. Hopefully it goes on there. If you're not finding a solution, you're finding an excuse. That's phenomenally true. Okay, um, why do I get
1: nauseated at bottom of heavy squats
0: with belt? Well, this question first came up. I was like, man, that's a silly question. But <laughs> as I thought about it longer, I'm like, well, actually, that's a great question because there's a lot of things that could be causing that. Uh, one, eating too close to the workout. Too much food in there. The, the belt is going to put a lot more intra-abdominal pressure. So if you've eaten too close, or are eating too much. Near the workout and it hasn't digested, it's going to put a lot of pressure up. The second would be a belt being too tight that is constricting the abdominal wall and you're not able to get a good solid brace, so you're getting hypoxic, you don't have enough oxygen in your system from that brace, from that breath, and you're kind of getting nauseous or lightheaded from that pressure. And the other third one would just be a general lack of condition. If you aren't conditioned to training or those rest times or that load, it can make you feel slightly nauseous or sick. Um, Probably the number one thing that people happen when they do like the first week of like a CrossFit class is they all complain they're nauseous because they're simply not conditioned to it. So the first thing I would look at is did you eat too close to the workout or the wrong type of food? Uh, is your belt too constrictive and too tight? You should be able to expand to the belt. It shouldn't be constricting you. And we see that all the time when people put a video and they're like being choked by the belt. And they're it's like a corset. It's like a corset and their posture rounds. Or is it just something that you're so new or so novice to this that you aren't conditioned to heavier loads, in which case you might need to spend some time working in that range to get a little bit more conditioned, a little bit more used to it. Uh, a third and, I'm oh, sorry, a fourth would also be sometimes nerves. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who gets very, very nervous around heavy lifts, that is a little bit more of a mindset thing. And maybe you are making yourself physically nauseous by that nervous response. And that's just a matter of confidence. And it, that will come with time. It may not be the belt. It may just be that the weights are heavy enough with the belt that it makes you nervous.
1: Yeah, we definitely want to have intra-abdominal pressure. So you're going to get a little bit of discomfort, but you definitely shouldn't be getting shouldn't have so much discomfort that you're nauseated. But my general first thought was if the belt was too tight because I feel like that's the most common thing that
0: we end up seeing. Basically pushing everything in content up that's in your stomach. And there could be a lot in your stomach because it takes 12 to 24 hours for us to digest food. So if you have a very heavy meal pre-workout, that could definitely be being pushed up. Uh, And it also goes to show you that, you know, don't don't look at things at face value when that question first popped through. I'm like, what a silly question. I know it's, wait, there's a lot more to that and someone needs to understand why. So actually, it was a great question.
1: Why do I get adductor pain after squatting? Is it just weak adductors?
0: Uh, Probably not weak adductors if you're getting adductor pain. It's probably weakness somewhere else. Core strength weakness, glute weakness and so forth within that pattern that you are actually relying on your adductors too much. And they're shouldering the load of hip extension. So the other hip extension muscles would be the hamstrings, would be the glutes, and so if they're not contributing to the lift itself, the adductor is doing all the work as far as the hip extension portion of the squat. And that may be why they're hurting because they're, they're being asked to do too much. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a mobility issue. Sometimes it's a really form pattern issue. Um, sometimes it's just really, poorly really poor bracing. Sight unseen, I don't know. You're not one of my clients. So I, I couldn't necessarily tell you, but those are the things I would look at. Uh, is your hip extension strength weak as far as hip external rotation? Mm-hmm. So that would, that would indicate it's probably glutes or lateral hamstring. If you're, if you're, Really folding very far forward, and you aren't a very tall lifter, then chances are you aren't using your quads very efficiently, and you're probably asking too much of hip extension. And sometimes it's because people have watched old West Side videos and they're just trying to squat too squat wide. Too wide <laughs> you're not Chuck Vogel, no matter how much you want to be. Yeah,
1: I would, ch- I feel like personally, I would probably check internal and external rotation first. Yeah, and
0: go from there. I want bolder shoulders like you guys, front raised until my arms are off. No, yes. um. <laughs> She's like yes. Uh, I, I uh, no, I wouldn't say front raises, but I would say you know years and years and years and years and years of pressing. I don't know that I have bolder shoulders. I'm actually relatively narrow, or maybe my arms are just long. They always look relatively narrow. Uh, Riley's shoulders are way better than I'm gonna get out of the so you can see. She's got way better shoulders. But really, she looks more like a bodybuilder now training powerlifting than she did bodybuilding. And, and some of that's really just body composition. You know, the leaner you get, the more you're gonna see that definition between the shoulders and the arms. It's just something that, that happens. Uh, I would always think that shoulders are like a weakness of mine if I was to step on stage. But um, you know, I I do love overhead pressing. And when it comes to strength, load matters more than isolation. So front delt raises are a decent or good exercise for the front delts, but they're not going to help you much in your powerlifting journey because we don't use the front delts very much and people tend to do those and get very anteriorly dominated, which isn't a good thing. You'll pull yourself forward. Yeah. But I would stick with the overhead press variations and bench press variations and really consider body composition. You know, the leaner you get, the better your shoulders will look.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, doing bodybuilding, it was, I had entirely always isolated, you know, like I did front raises, lateral raises, all that kind of stuff. And I have better shoulders now and I hardly ever have direct shoulder work. Like right now I have meadow six way shoulders in my program. Um, She
0: just loves them for the pump.
1: Yeah, it's a great pump. Um, (laughs) But, like, I don't have a whole lot of specific shoulder work. Like, I overhead press every, it's like every other block or so I have an overhead press in there. But, uh, majority of what I do is bench press and rows and pull ups and dips. And, like, those are just the things that uh, are what is building my bench press. And I don't necessarily. Care if it's building my shoulders or not. I mean, it's
0: great. If you yeah, if you look at it from the aspect of the best shoulder development you'll ever see is on gymnasts, Mm. and gymnasts do not overhead press; they press themselves. Yeah. So dips, pull ups, push ups, stuff like that, really hit the anterior deltoid. But then these people are also strength to weight ratio exceptionally lean athletes, so you can see that muscular definition. So that prison pump plan that we always talk about of the dips, pull ups, and push ups is the best way to have that development because then you're going to work on sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and so forth. You know, a lot of high rep movements, um, but the load is higher. You know, you're going to have a lot more load in a dip than you will in a front raise. Absolutely.
1: All right.
0: Prison pump today. Prison pump. Let's see what we got here. You have talked about being a long time insomniac. I also had decades of being sleep deprived. Can you suggest something other than the usual, other than melatonin, etc., sleep hygiene? Uh, Really tough. Um, This is the hardest one for me to control of all variables is my sleep because I will wake up a lot and I get very angry so I get what's called sleep paranoia because I, I start to get very very anxious and uneasy when I can't sleep and that only wakes me up more. Uh, so the first thing i would suggest is finding a way to calm your body. That's one of the reasons why I say like no blue light, no no phone, no anything. Uh, it's usually Do not Disturb and stuff like that. I don't want to hear what's going on. I don't want in the room. I don't want to know what's going on. I don't want the TV on. Anything that's going to stimulate my mind or, or trigger me in any way. So for a lot of people, meditation works, calming music works. Uh, things like melatonin and stuff like that are, are more to let your body know it's nighttime so it starts the rest. But you can develop a system of relaxation methods such as counting your breathing, Working on slowing your exhale out, slowing your inhale out, it's going to get you focused on that as opposed to whatever problems you may have in your life. Like I said, the calming music, there are apps that will play certain, certain musics or sounds, binaural sounds that will help put you in a calming state, relaxing state. Some people will do a small amount of meditation or yoga before bed that calms or relaxes them. One of the things I do, I, I tend to notice the nights I sleep better is when I don't forget to do my nighttime movement stuff because it's a lot of stretching and that stretching kind of relaxes me, lets me know it's nighttime, and then I sleep better. Um, You know, it's not the time for contrast showers, so if you shower at night, it's not the time to go hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, (laughs) because it's gonna stimulate your system, but maybe a very, very warm, hot shower to relax you, or a warm bath, whatever it may be, but the more you can relax your body and relax your mind, The better it will be for you to sleep regardless of whatever you take to help you sleep those things are all used to calm you like the lemon balm that's in the the good night formula is used to calm you because the calmer you are the better you're going to sleep
1: yeah (coughs) i noticed with him he breathes really rapidly so like that's something that like i've had to remind him uh just say
0: like okay you need to like
1: slow down stop breathing so fast not Uh, (laughs) breathing yeah just breathe so uh violently I guess. Um if you have Apple Music or Spotify, you can search for pink noises. Um so it's not like white noise. It pink noise is a little bit more calm and like tranquil and that's supposed to help with sleep too. That can always be something that you play in the background while you're falling asleep and you can set a timer for it.
0: Kind of a two part question here from Geo Mar Strength. One question every time I squat I get knee pain but it's not joint, it's like nerve. I ice it for two days and it's gone. It's just one small Point. I think it means right in front of the kneecap. Any suggestions? Uh, the knee is a joint. <laughs> Just FYI. Um, it flexes and extends and so forth. But if you're feeling pain on the kneecap, it's probably not the joint itself. Like you mentioned, it's probably the tendon if it's there. I, I would never suggest icing the pain to make it go away and numbing it because you don't know what's causing it and all you're doing is numbing the sensation, which is the warning sign. Our body gives us these signals that it's a warning sign. Now, if, it's, if it feels like nerve and more of a burning sensation, it could be. You never know. That could stem from some type of disc issue or something like that that's radiating down the leg and that's the burning sensation you have. For other people, sometimes it's just a really poor hip mobility. So when you sit or you squat that knees in that flex position under load and it's being pulled, it causes a little bit more inflammation or like a patellar tendinitis kind of feeling just because That patella tendon is constantly being pulled and tightened because you have such poor hip flexor mobility or glute work and stuff like that. So sometimes a simple fix wouldn't be to ice it. It would be to do more like weighted glute bridges, um, couch stretches and stuff like that to work on the actual hip mobility. So the patella tendon isn't always in such a stiff shortened state causing it to have that irritation feeling. Uh, Like for example, that the knot that people get like, if they're staring at their computer like this and they get a knot in their back and like, oh, my back is tight. It's actually the opposite. Your back isn't tight, your front is, and your front is pulling those muscles in your back, and that causes that burning, irritating sensation. So you need to actually contract your back and stretch your front. The knee is the same way. If you're getting that burning sensation at the tip of your kneecap, chances are you don't have very good hip extension in relation to hip flexion. Your hips are shortened and a shortened state. They're constantly flexed. And you need to lengthen that to take care of that pressure. And like Riley said earlier in this podcast, that's not going to happen from stretching in one time. It's going to happen from stretching every day. You might have a sedentary job where you sit at a desk all the time and your hamstrings are shortened and your hip flexors are shortened. And then when you go and load them, they're already shortened. You're pulling at that patella tendon really, really toughly. And that's causing an irritated feeling. And icing it is just numbing the pain away. It's not fixing the problem. So you're, you're band-aiding a problem instead of actually looking for a solution.
1: It's hardly, we talked about this before, but it's hardly ever that the pain is pinpointed exactly where you feel it. Mm -hmm. Like, you generally always have to look above or below. So in this case, hip mobility is likely more of the cause of it, but it could also be ankle. But you have to test trial and error above and below where it's happening instead of trying to just, like, you know, if your if you're quad hurts and you massage right on the quad, that probably feels good momentarily, but it's probably not fixing the issue because right. not becoming, it's probably coming from somewhere else.
0: It's a temporary relief, temporary right. sensation, which means you haven't addressed the issue. You just address the symptom.
1: Yes. Okay. Um,
0: what do we get? Yeah. Thank you very much my mobility sucks. Well, problem solved. That, yes. <laughs> well, okay. So solution found to solve the problem. It's on you now. Yes. <laughs>
1: How do you suggest addressing athletes who go off program
0: and do dumb shit a lot? Change professions. Um, So Gabriel asked this, and we all have that. Every coach has an athlete that constantly goes a little too crazy. Now, if an athlete will communicate to me ahead of time and say, hey, we have a deadlift party coming up, or we have like birthday bench off or whatever, you know, cool. I want people to have fun. I don't want them to be so rigid and stuck. This is a hobby after all. For most people, they don't make their living doing this, and I want them to enjoy the process. If it's one of those things where it's week in and week out, they're always going off program, always overshooting, always doing something. I'll usually take the RPE away from them and give them a percentage of it. They can't do that, and if they are, I'm gonna be like, "Hey, I'm gonna call them out publicly for doing it." But if they are doing that on a consistent basis, I will have that talk with them and say, "Do you want to be a competitive powerlifter, or do you want to be an Instagram lifter?" Because if you want to be a competitive powerlifter, these are the steps you have to take to get there. If you just want to be an Instagram lifter and get those likes, then don't even bother competing. Don't even bother having a coach. Just go and do whatever the hell you want. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your time. Just do whatever the hell you want. You're never going to get anywhere because that's what you'd rather be as an Instagram lifter. And that's fine. If that's what you want to be, be it. There are plenty out there who do that. But if you want to progress as an athlete and you hire a coach, that's the point is they're there to guide you towards your goal. You simply have to follow the plan and execute the plan. And if you're constantly going off plan, you're not hurting the coach. You're hurting yourself. And the coach cares enough. That's why Gabriel asked to say, how do you handle it? And it is that tough, uncomfortable conversation you have to have with the lifter. I've had it with several, and there are some that just don't get it, and I literally let them go as clients to say, hey, at this point, you're just making me look bad, and I don't want that. I wish you the best of luck, but you're going to have to find a different person to guide you because you just want to max out all the time or do whatever. And you you have to be willing to do that because at the end of the day, you don't want to look like an irresponsible coach who doesn't care about their athlete, Mm -hmm. and the athlete doesn't understand that that's how they're making you look by doing so. By constantly going off-program or going rogue all the time, you're making the coach look bad. So as an athlete, you don't wanna do that because the coach isn't gonna to wanna to work with you. They're not gonna to wanna to be associated with you. Uh, you. know, It's more important that they come across as somebody who cares and a professional than somebody who just has somebody who can hit 700 pounds week in and week out in, in the gym. You know, th- That doesn't matter to the coach. The coach wants you to go from 700 to 800 and that's a process that he needs you to follow to get there or she needs you to follow to get there and so forth. So as an athlete, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're also doing a disservice to the coach. As a coach, if you're unwilling to have that conversation with the athlete, you're going to hurt yourself in the long run because you're going to be frustrated by them and constantly, constantly looking at them going, why are you making me look bad? And you're just going to fire them anyway. So you might as well just pull the bandit off now, fire them ahead of time or have that really tough talk with them ahead of time because they're they're making themselves look like an idiot and they're making you look like an idiot. Yeah, you have to let
1: them know that like it's their accountability, right? When I saw something. I don't remember who posted it, but I saw something on Instagram that was like, if you are willing to give your hard-earned money to a coach, you have to be willing to trust them. Like, why would you give someone your money if you didn't trust them to guide you the right way? So, I have had that before where athletes have gone off-program and they have either tried to max out for three weeks in a row, or they've decided to not do something that I programmed for them, and they decided to do something else instead... That what that they wanted to do, and then you know I've gotten messages where they're like, "Well, I'm not progressing. Why am I not progressing? What am I uh, What am I doing wrong?" And I'm pretty blunt. Um, I'm a little bit uh, nicer with my delivery of words sometimes than like Trevor is, but um, <laughs> I'm still pretty blunt to the point where I'm like, "Hey, you know, you have consistently gone off program and." Here's when you did it, here's what you did, and here's what you were supposed to do. And this is why you're not seeing progress because you're not consistently working on the things that you need to work on or you're burning yourself out or whatever other reason and thing that happened. You know, Um, it's not something that's fun and I never want to feel like I'm scolding an athlete because sometimes that's what it feels like is like I'm scolding them. But ultimately like it kind of is my job to tell you when you are and are not messing up. yeah. So I will make it point blank apparent to that lifter. Like, Hey, this is, you are accountable for you and you are accountable for your progress. I am your helping hand. I'm the guiding hand that's supposed to walk with you and do those things with you. Um, but if you are not holding up your end of the bargain, you are like not allowing yourself to hit the goal that you want. And I will be totally honest. And I've had lifters that have gotten really mad and not talked to me for a week. I've gotten lifters who were like, you know, I'm going to find a different coach. And I've also gotten lifters that have been like, you know what, you're right and I will do better. And the ones that are like, you're right, I will do better are the ones that are continuing to progress now. And the ones that left or got mad at me or whatever are the ones that are still going off program and they still have the same numbers. Yeah, they changing coaches
0: didn't help them because they haven't changed themselves. Yeah,
1: it does not matter. It really doesn't, if you're a lifter like that, who's it's ego lifting is 100% what it is going off program all the time. If you're an ego lifter, you're never going to improve until you check your ego.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming Edward at one point probably was because he's like, oh yes, facts and things like that. <laughs> the nervous face. Uh, if you guys don't know, Edward Bar, super great, you know, power know, fair bench presser. Uh, probably the most narrowest squat stance you'll ever see anyone do in this day and age who's not a weightlifter, like I low bar. That-
1: nonchalantly say that he's like a great bench presser as if he doesn't hold like the
0: world record. No no but that's why you say he's a great bench <laughs> presser. He, he holds like the two twenty, I think, full power all time bench yeah. record. Uh, open class, which is respect like five eighty four, five eighty seven, something like that. Really cool. Something
1: no big deal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but you know, we all go through that at some point in time, especially when we first start lifting, Is we get those newbie games and we get excited, we always want to test ourselves and then we get to a point where you actually I just had this conversation with the lifter this week. The stronger you get, the longer it will be between PRs. And the Absolutely. more work you have to do to actually get there. It gets harder the stronger you get, not easier. It's easy in the beginning. It's very, very difficult when you're at that upper level because now you have to do twice as much work for twice as long just to see that PR. And I don't mean twice as much like four sets becomes eight. I just mean is like you just have to now be nuanced with your nutrition, nuanced with your sleep and your recovery and your periodization model and knowing when you can full throttle a little bit. And if you're doing it all the time, it's so far going backwards when you're constantly maxing out when you get to a certain strength level because the recovery demands are so much higher. So that's when you have to be, you know, the work is in the restraint at that point. More restraint, the stronger you get. Not doing more overall volume, but more overall restraint to not fatigue yourself out too soon, too quickly. Right, all right. So another question just came up. I am competing for the first time in seven weeks. Top three tips for newbie lifting on meet day. I'm gonna give you one right off the bat. You're seven weeks out. If you can go to a meet beforehand, beforehand, if you've never been to one, know what it's about. See the atmosphere, see the platform, see where the scores table is, see the systems. Attend the rules meeting. Knowing these things ahead of time is going to take a lot of fear, doubt, and uncertainty off the table for you because you already know what to expect. Mm -hmm. The second thing is go in to have a mindset of have fun, not the mindset to win. You have no idea who's there and what they can do, and it's not about that. It's about what you can do on that day. You're preparing for your day, not their day. So go in there with the mindset that you just want to have fun, build your best total, and go from there. The third thing is bring more than you need. Bring more water, bring more food, bring more clothes, bring whatever more you need. You don't want to run out because you don't want to have panic. So bring extra water, bring extra electrolytes, bring extra food, um, bring an extra pair of underwear because you never know when an accident's going to happen, you know. Uh, bring an extra pair of socks. You never know when you're going to drop one, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, the more prepared you are ahead of time, the easier that day becomes. And it's better to have too much than not enough.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say my top three, number one would be have fun. Always. Um, because even if you, you could be at the highest level and you could be super competitive, but if you're not having fun doing it, what's the fucking point? Right. You know, like, so it doesn't matter. So you should always have fun. Um, treat it like a fancy training day is what I always say. Like you have literally, you've quite literally trained four to five days a week for as long as you've been powerlifting to do a meet. Like that's literally what you train for it is squat bench and deadlift to do a meet. So you have trained every single day for this meet. So you're prepared. You're ready. It's fine. This is fancy training day. You just get to wear a singlet while you do it. Um, oh, no one looks good in the same
0: way. I don't care what I can tell you. No one looks good in the same way. My
1: salute no looks one. pretty
0: good. No, nah, it's nice, but it's just, nah, no one looks good in a I uh,
1: Two, make sure that it's you. It's not fashionable. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a giant onesie.
1: Two, um, I would prepare everything the night before. Like, just be ready, make a checklist. Um, you know, make sure that you have read the rule book and you can read, you know, what is approved and what isn't, as far as like your belt, your wrist wraps, all that kind of stuff goes, and pack it the night before actually physically make yourself a checklist to say like singlet, deadlift socks, wrist wraps, uh, belt, blah, 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 make a checklist and quite literally <laughs> check Shut it out when you pack it. And that's what we do every single time that we travel or go to meets or whatever. So read the rule book and know what you can and can't have and then make a checklist the night before. Um, three, if it's your first meet, I would say make sure that you have someone there with you that can just keep you in good spirits. Um, you don't necessarily need like a handler unless you're
0: Getting knee wraps. Yeah.
1: Um, so it's not that you need someone to tell you what to do because you know what to do already. Um, you just have a little confidence in yourself. But I would make sure that there is someone there with you that can kind of just keep you relaxed in the middle. You know, they can eat some snacks with you or they can um, just have a fun, fun conversation with you. Just someone that you feel relaxed and comfortable with. All
0: right. So Edward actually updated that. He says definitely notice constantly pushing top sets. Led to more fatigue going into meats leading up to worse performance. Definitely not worth it to have the gym PRs over the meat PRs. And that's something we talk about often. If your gym numbers are more than your meat numbers, you're training well. Yeah. It's the idea is to put up your best meat number, not your best gym number, because they don't count in the gym. They're cool and they're fun when they have like deadlift parties or events, but they don't count. So you wanna make sure that the numbers you're putting up count. Do them in the meat, not in the gym. And that's that's why I talked about the restraint. You know, uh, I'm fortunate that my gym numbers are within five pounds of my meat numbers. But I know some people who used to have like a hundred pounds more on a lift in the gym because they would do like strap deadlifts at like eight hundred pounds, but only pull like seven eleven in the meat. That's actually 890, 88 pounds, eighty nine pounds. But nonetheless, you know, wouldn't you rather have the eight hundred pound in the in the competition than in the than in the gym? Doesn't matter in the gym, so who cares? Um, you're not winning anything for doing it in the gym. <laughs> you win the hypertrophy, yay! Uh, but that's that's it. You know, you, you see a high level lifter, all time world record. Edwards is just confirming that that you know pushing it in the gym doesn't mean it's going to be there on the platform. It means it's less likely to be there on the platform because you push too hard. So be strong enough to show restraint. That's our episode this week. Make sure you guys share it when it comes out on Monday. We appreciate it. So it's really awesome to see people share this in their stories. It's cool. Support Culture Nutra at CultureNutra.com. Uh, general health benefits plus sports performance whatever you need is there and the trainer road platform we have the cultivating strengths so if you don't know what you're doing programming wise and you're struggling or you just want to kind of learn how to program there's a good way to do that you can follow that structure for as long as you want get a general idea it includes warm-ups your main exercise and accessory movements and so forth and it's periodized out for you so it's already done it deloads after every fourth week so there you go anything to add to
1: that that is all thank you
0: dynamite <laughs> well you uh, talk
1: so much you cover everything <laughs> I,
0: and I talk fast some people have said that they have to play her like 1.25 no, and play me in like .75 or something like that no, no, like, like, no Riley's
1: totally fine I played that in normal but I have to slow Trevor's down like,
0: to <laughs> to, to him this is my slow speed <laughs> alright guys thank you happy holidays all you guys Merry Christmas Happy Hanukkah if you're a Kwanzaa person I don't know what the word is maybe it's Merry Kwanzaa Happy Kwanzaa whatever it is hopefully I didn't exclude anyone you guys have a great one